Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. If you'd stand with me, please, for the reading of the word. Reading out of the book of John, very first chapter, in the beginning the word, uh, which is another word for Jesus, basically. It was something that was um, a part of Greek thought, and we won't go into that today, but it represents a number of things, but we'll just keep it simple today. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already existed. And the Word, or Jesus, was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. Nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, our hearts and our minds to receive, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. This series is entitled um, The Light of the World. This is the second of what is a four-part series that we'll finish up on Christmas Day. The title uh, in your bulletin is listed as direction, but that's actually going to be next week. Uh, we're going to put it today as dedication, how that happened. Well, there are times you prepare a message, and then there's other times the message kind of prepares you. And while I had entitled this uh, direction as this got deeply evolved, um, that's going to be for next week. So today, we're going to focus on the idea of dedication. Um, before I get too much into this, I want to clarify something, too, that it occurred to me a day or two after last Sunday that could have been misunderstood, and I want to make it clear. Last week, when we talked about Zechariah's prophecy over John, who eventually becomes the Baptist, his son, it's talked about now here in the book of John as well, different John. Um, at one point in time, I was reading that prophecy, and it's talking about the redemption of the people and a mighty Savior. And in verse 71, it says, Now we'll be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. And I found in both services myself um, hesitating at that point or, or, or being caught by something. And it didn't occur to me at all until later that some of you could have seen that. And when it's saying, um, now be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us, and you sense some emotion in that moment from me, Aquinas, I imagine some of you could be thinking here that, oh my gosh, what, what kind of enemies does he have that he's so caught with this passage right now? And that's not it at all. What I was caught with in reading this is this man is reading about the prophecy of the Messiah coming, the redemption of his people, the Jewish people, 
and how they'll be saved from their enemies and from all who hate us. And in a season of the most outrageous level of cynicism and anti-Semitism that I've ever seen in my lifetime, worldwide, I was caught with the poignancy of that passage um, in the midst of what we're seeing here right now. And so I want to explain that and have you understand that. We are seeing the worst that we've ever seen that, that in, in the season of time. And, and again, as I've said, there's a reason for that. Um, not raising up an individual people group as such, but God did choose the Jewish people for whom Jesus Christ, who was Jewish, and the early church was almost entirely Jewish, um, to, from whom his blessing of salvation and redemption of the entire world was going to come through. And I think as a result, yes, there's a degree to which they are a marked people. I think there's a degree to which the satanic forces of darkness in this world, and they do exist. If you don't believe that, just review uh, the Nazis and several other groups of people from Stalin to Mao to others, including within our own country, and you realize evil does exist. And I think that evil hates these people from whom this Messiah, this Savior that will crush ultimately, Satan. I think that's the root of where this comes from. Now, in addition to that, you're faced immediately as you walk in today with this, and you can sit here and go, oh my gosh, are we becoming Jewish? Okay. Or, or those of you that don't know us at all, sit here and go, have I walked into a synagogue, or maybe I've walked into some kind of syncretistic cult? Well, yes, you have. <laughs> so glad you came. No, um, there's a reason why I have this up here today, and this is a menorah, and the nerd menorah just means lamp. The original menorah was seven candles. We'll talk about that in a second. This one is uh, nine, ultimately. This is a Hanukkah menorah. Hanukkah is a festival that began this past Thursday for Jewish. It'll continue until and conclude on Friday. Um, having it up here is several reasons. I have a particular reason for it, but there's another reason, too, it's not bad. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but Hanukkah is being canceled by a number of communities over concern for seeing as choosing a side or as opening controversy of some type or another. And so they've canceled Hanukkah in a lot of places. There are a lot of Jewish people that are, are fearful of placing, as they traditionally would, um, a menorah, a Hanukkah menorah in the window where it was supposed to be lit and was supposed to um, cast light to the world against darkness and evil. But concern now is that it'll draw attention and possibly draw an attack. Uh, there was a conversation recently where a Gentile uh, was asking a Jewish person, would it be wrong as a Gentile for me to have a menorah at Hanukkah and light it? And they said, no, particularly at this point in time, it could have some real meaning. Um, of standing with or at least standing against hatred and darkness. Uh, that alone, I think, wouldn't be a bad reason for us having it up here today. Um, but there's a deeper reason, and we'll get to that in a moment of time. Traditionally, for Hanukkah, you would place the eight candles in here, and you'd place them one at a time here. So traditionally, there would be only three up here right now. A fourth would be placed at sundown tonight, and then continuing on. There'd be a central candle that would be used to light the others. So you position right to left, but you light left to right. And that would be part of that tradition. So again, there's more to this. We'll get on to that in just a moment of time. 
But let's go back to our initial passage of Scripture here, reading in John chapter 1 again here. This is talking at the beginning. John wants us to understand, again, not John the Baptist, but John the Evangelist, John the disciple of Jesus, wants us to understand um, that there is um, the nature of who Christ was and is. The Jewish people had, had come out of a polytheistic where money gods were worshipped. And as we saw it said last week even, the central prayer of Israel was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so the oneness, the singularity that there's only one God, monotheism, okay, was driven into their heart and mind. And they had an understanding and a revelation of God through Moses and the prophets and the Old Testament. But even in Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament, when we look closely, we see something else going on there. There seems to be the spirit of God showing up. There's this angel of the Lord that seems to speak directly for God that shows up in several places as well. There's something else that appears to be going on. And we understand through this and other passages that God is one. But there's three persons, there's three um, traits. We can't quite understand it. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's kind of like an ant trying to understand marriage. You know, we're told that we're one in marriage. How does an ant understand that? Because he sees two people, but there's one. They can't comprehend that. Your dog can't comprehend. Your dog loves you, but it cannot comprehend that. It just stares and smiles and wags his tail, unlike a cat, which is a whole different issue. But this is not the time for harshness or violence. We move past that moment. And so there's an understanding that we have now with Christ who repeatedly says that he's God, but references the Father. And when he leaves, he says the Holy Spirit is also God. We pray there. So there's a oneness And he's emphasizing this, John the beginning says, in the beginning the Word, Jesus already existed and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed and somehow God the Father created everything through him. All light, all creation, everything was done through Jesus Christ. Now, this Trinitarian concept, and we're not going to go long on this, so don't fade off on me here. The, the, The Trinitarian concept is unique to Christianity. Mormonism has a singular God. Uh, uh, Islam has, has Allah. Uh, they're not the same. In each case, it's told that they're loving. But love requires an object. And, and if Allah or the Mormon God have been, and other gods have been alone for all of time, and nobody else, they're equal, no one else sharing, there's no way that, that could have love as a nature. But in the nature of Christianity and the Trinitarian God, we know that love does exist for eternity. Because the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always, for eternity, loved uh, the Spirit. And the Spirit has always, forever and ever, loved the Father. There has been this perfect love, this perfect unity, so much that it's one. Not three, but one. And yet still something within that, a Father, Son, and Spirit. Not mask playing and different looks, but, but distinct still in a certain way. We don't understand it fully. But what it does tell us is that love does exist, that there's been this beautiful community for all of eternity. And it's not that God get lonely and decide to create us because his need was so great. Instead, it's this this riot of love and, and harmony that invites us to come in and to be a part of that. It's an invitation to join the eternal dance. And so John is emphasizing that Christ is God. And this was a radical expansion, not a differentiation, but an expansion of the original concept. And as I say, we see this in the Old Testament in different places now that we have that understanding. Christ is this creative force. From the beginning, we see that light is linked not just with creation, 
but it's linked directly with Jesus. That this light shines in the darkness, one of my favorite passages. The darkness has not overcome it. It cannot understand it in one of the languages. It can't encompass it. It, it cannot destroy it. That this light somehow shines in the middle of the darkness and nothing the darkness does can even understand that light, let alone overcome it. It's a fascinating, fascinating expression of the nature of Christ. But then it goes a little bit deeper and actually gives us the title of our series here for the first time. You see, in John chapter 8, verse 12, it says that Jesus spoke to the people once more. He said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Here is the first time he's sitting here saying, I am, Jesus himself is identifying with what John has said earlier, I am the light of the world. I'm the creative force. I'm the thing that brings light and joy. Now, he's saying this while teaching in the temple area. And as he teaches in the temple area, um, the Scripture says that he is doing this during something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And, And we'll touch on this. Because here's another interesting twist on this. We celebrate... Jesus' birthday on December 25th. That is something that was established by the Roman Catholic Church around the 4th century or so. Um, There's a variety of reasons. One of those was a lot of pagan influences they wanted to co-opt. There's a lot of other reasons we won't dwell into that too heavily here right now. But there are a lot of people who would suggest that actually a time in October or so would have been more likely or September that Jesus would have been born. Very possibly in the Feast of Tabernacles one of the celebrations that's held annually in Judaism. They say this for a couple of reasons. One is that it is unlikely that shepherds would have been watching their flocks in December, in the dead of winter. It's just not likely to have happened. It was too cold. But it's very probable in the September-October period or so. Another one, though, is drawn from this passage that comes later, actually, um, in the first chapter that we just touched upon, And it is John chapter 1, verse 14, just a little later. And it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But it's this word dwelt, this dwelling among us. The word John uses is a word called that that is tabernacle, which means to dwell in a tent. He uses this unique phraseology to say that God dwells among us in the presence of Christ in a tabernacle, maybe because, again, speculation, that it was during the Feast of Tabernacles it was done. Maybe it was because it was to emphasize the temporariness of Jesus' sojourn with us, born in a manger for a season of time, only to return to heaven. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was to remember a time when the Jews had been wandering in the desert and lived in tents. In fact, during the time of the uh, um, Feast of the Tabernacles, they would actually uh, uh, construct little booths or little tents on their property. Sometimes they even lived in them for a period of time during the festival. Um, It was to remind them of what it meant to be in that type of a setting. And so perhaps, we don't know that that could have related to his birth. What we do know is that when he makes this statement... I am the light of the world, that he's doing this on the temple grounds at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And not too long after that, a little bit after that, you would have Hanukkah, because they would have celebrated that 
in the time period of Jesus because the celebration of Hanukkah began two centuries before Jesus. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles um, was a particularly um, powerful moment of time. In this Feast of the Tabernacles, as I said, they would live in these temporary places. Um, they would um, uh, light at one point in time. They, in the temple grounds, they had a progression in the temple from the court of the Gentiles, any of us, most of us in this room, unless you're Jewish, could hang out in. The next place was the court of women. Only Jewish women could go there. The next place was the court of men. Only Jewish men. The next place was, was a place that the priests could only go. And there was a holy place that a priest would go in daily and do sacrifice and do different things to. And then the holy of holies, which was a whole different animal. But during the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would not only have these little booths they'd set up, but there was, um, on the temple grounds, four 75-foot-tall golden menorahs, seven candle menorahs, but they were actually oil lamps is what they were, 75-foot, solid gold. Now, we've been really fortunate that we managed to get this solid gold one from Amazon just last night. <laughs> And, um, you know, that's just, it's, it's a blessing, okay? Um, it's, it's not, so don't try and chip anything off it, all right? This one's different. This one is a nine-candle one. There's a difference between this one and the one that would have been used in the Feast of Tabernacles. The tabernacle was something that was established. We didn't quite get to this in our study of Exodus, but it was an, an early place of worship that was in the center of the camp as they're wandering around for 40 uh, years. And the Ark of the Covenant was in this, and, and a golden menorah, solid gold, carved out of a solid block of, of gold, um, and other items were in this place of worship. And it traveled with them, with God in the center of the camp all the time. When it got to the point where there was a temple finally being established, then um, at that point in time, uh, the, the, that basic format was turned into the temple area, a physical structure. And um, they had these courts, as I outlined, and everything else, and the Holy of Holies, etc., etc. And there's this first temple that Solomon built, and a menorah was lit in that one, and they kept an eternal flame going all the time. So the, the menorah that sat, the smaller one, the gold, solid gold one that sat in this holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, was lit and kept lit all the time with a special purified type of oil. In fact, when Zechariah, we talked about last week, who's going to minister as a priest before God and hears from Gabriel, it's in that holy place as he's doing the incense and doing the, 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 the rest of that, that, that he's intersected by uh, um, Gabriel at that time. And so um, you've got this tabernacle that turns into the temple. The temple is actually intended to point towards a time of heaven where God is the light and there is no darkness. And the implication is there's no sleep. There's no exhaustion. There's nothing but, but complete, full reality and joy with God. And he, he is the light that's at that time. After the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of, of Babylon, there's a second one that was established um, by Ezra. And again, in this temple, they would keep things lit all the time. They were constantly having this maintaining of the, uh, of the light with a purified type of oil. It would have been a seven candlestick. So why has this one got nine? This goes back against some history. Two centuries before Christ, um, there was a struggle in the Middle East. 
Surprise, okay? Um, Egypt controlled Israel at this time. Syria wanted to and won the battle, so they control uh, Israel. Um, the guy who really takes over is pretty lenient. He's like, look, you have your traditions, everything else. I just want the money. I just want the prestige. I just want control. You guys keep your lives as they are. But his son comes along, class A jerk. And he's really going to, to change things. He comes from the Greek culture, the dominant culture of its time. We're going to change the culture of the Jewish people and of Israel. And so um, as a result, no more circumcision. Uh, no more worship in the temple of God. You're going to worship Zeus. You're going to do this type. Anybody else does this stuff, it's on pain of death. In fact, he goes into the temple and he actually sacrifices a pig in the temple area to, to just completely desecrate it. The people eventually revolt with a group of people called the Maccabees, a family called the Maccabees. They revolt, and amazingly, this little ragtag group of, of farmers and other stuff defeat the most dominant military of its time. They push them out of the country, and they take back their land. They go in, and they clean up the temple, and they're straightening everything else around, and they're trying to, to rededicate it, and, and the, the eternal flame has gone out. They, they get it going on a menorah, but they've only got enough oil, because these would have been oil lamps. The candles are a modern uh, rendition. They only have enough purified oil. They can only find one cruise of oil that's been purified ritually properly and has the seal of the former high priest, and, and this oil will only last for one day, and they're told it's going to take eight days to purify more oil to, to get this going on eternally. So, so they've got one cruise of oil. They put it in place. It's supposed to last one day, and, and, and they're desperate to get the other, they were, but it's still going to take eight days, and yet amazingly... Over the eight-day period, that one-day amount of oil lasts as a miraculous way to maintain it the whole time until they can purify and get the oil and continue. And so Hanukkah um, basically means dedication. It was the dedication of the temple, and it was the miracle that this oil had lasted all this time period. And it managed to do that. So this miracle they celebrated from the second century up through Christ up until today as the festival of lights, this miracle. The, 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 the central um, candle there is, is referred to as a, as a shamash. And it's interesting to me because the term, this one is, is, is the, the language means helper or it can also mean servant. Just some really important prophetic elements as regarding Christ. Now, this one is strictly used to light the others over this eight-day period. That's what Hanukkah, that's what this idea that to them um, was this against all odds of a small group of people being able to stand against the forces of darkness, overcome and purify their lives and their people, and start once again under the auspices of God. This festival was a reminder that God had promised to send a light and then did in this case. Now, in before that, you've got the Feast of the Tabernacles, as I said just before that. And that was a reminder um, that, that God had sent this light to a sin-darkened world. It was a promise to send them aside to renew Israel's glory and release them from bondage and restore their joy. And so with the Festival of, of, of Tabernacles, there was an expectation of light. With Hanukkah, called the Festival of Lights. It's in the middle of all this that Jesus is talking about himself being the light of the world. And particularly with the tabernacle, as I started to say, 
they had in the court of the women 75 foot tall, seven lamp candlesticks, gold, huge, big up there, four of them. And during the Feast of the Tabernacles, they had what was called the illumination of the temple, where at one point in the night, they would light up all these candles or all these lamps in these four giant menorahs on the temple mount that would shine over the whole city. It was a light, it, they said it lit up the entire city. And they'd have dancing going on and celebration going on, all the expectation of the eventual light from heaven that's going to come and rescue them. All this was part of that process. So when Jesus has just finished up with the woman caught in adultery, and he's just resolved that, he continues his teaching on the temple. And it's that is where he starts talking about himself as the light of the world. In part, he's talking about and challenging the darkness of those who brought the woman. They didn't know their own failings, their own sin. She did. He was making it clear that we live in darkness when we do not know our own failings and short, when we do not understand ourselves or we think too highly of ourselves. But then you have someone who was abased who knew who they were. And it's not just the religious authorities he goes after. It's anybody who doesn't recognize their need for salvation, their need for the light of the world. But the imagery that's powerful about this is as he's talking about this, they would have either just experienced maybe the night before this illumination of the temple, these four 75-foot candelabras being lit up that would have shone over the whole city. So when he's sitting here saying, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of of this. Imagine that and the imagery. And then it crosses over, like I said, right after that into Hanukkah. The concept of Hanukkah has come to mean patience in the midst of difficulty. Understanding that the presence of God providing miraculously in dark times, often when we don't feel that we have sufficient oil or, or reserves or reservoirs within ourselves, and yet still he makes it last. Jesus said, I am the light of the world to those who were against him. But for the woman in sin, he was standing for her. Hanukkah, Feast of the Tabernacles, the illumination of the temple, all this light imagery was wrapped around what he says in chapter 8. But then it goes on. He doesn't stop there. In the next chapter, in chapter 9, it says, as Jesus was walking along, chapter 9, verse 1, he saw a man who had been blind from birth, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? There's a general sense of sin that causes illness, but it was common that, and it isn't unusual at times, that our own sin causes us more issues and problems. In this case, they're saying, what was it? His parents, they're assuming something there. Jesus corrects them. He says it wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sins. Never tell someone who's suffering Unless it's a clear connection, you know, like you took a hammer and slammed yourself on the head with it, why are you suffering from that? Because of the sin of hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. But unless it's clear like that, never tell someone. I had a girl I dated in college back in Florida, and uh, her younger sister was dying of cancer, and the, the, the father was an authority, a dean on our campus, Christian campus. And as that suffering stretched out until the little girl eventually died of cancer, there were those who went to the family different times or to the father and, and said, so just w w what sin is in your life? You should confess that and your daughter will live. That's a pretty sick thing in my viewpoint. Um, we're told in this situation it was not because of his, his sins or his parents' sins. 
This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the what? Light of the world. Second time he's saying it now. Feast Tabernacles is just finished. Hanukkah is probably in the midst of. I'm the light of the world. Then, then he spits in the ground, made mud with saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. One of his nastier um, miracles. Okay. <laughs> Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and, and came back seeing. Another version of this says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And it's talking about giving guidance through my word and through my works. Jesus makes mud. He makes him able to see again. He emphasizes those that those who follow him will not walk in darkness. An old writer from way back said, if we imagined that we could go fast enough to stay up with the, with the sun, and I've done this now in a plane, I've been flying, and you see that the sunset lasts much longer than it should because you're flying in that direction. And so a couple of times I've seen these incredible hour-long, you know, hours-long sunsets because you're continuing to pursue the light. He said, if we could do that, then we'd stay in the light all the time. The imagery of the tabernacle and the festival of that, the, of the Hanukkah, of all this thing is the idea that eventually we come to a place in God and in a place where there's always light. There's no darkness. There's no fear. There's no tears. It's the deepest reality that could possibly be experienced and understood. We walk through all this conversation today and I want you to understand something. And it came to me recently, and I've shared this story once or twice before in years past. But something caught me this time around, and I haven't shared one aspect of this story. But today I'd like to do so. Years ago, when I was a kid, I was somewhere maybe seven, maybe eight. I lived in Lansing, um, but this was, like I say, back in the 1900s. <laughs> it's weird we can keep saying that and we can laugh about it, you know, because we're so close enough to when we said the 1800s and recognize that was ancient times, you know, and a couple of years from now we won't think that way. Um, my father was pastor at a church. We lived in uh, a little thing called the Parsonage, which is the ch- building a home that the that the church owned, and so instead of giving the pastor 30 grand a year, they'd give him 20 grand in free housing, which sounds great, except you build no equity, and when you leave that church, you also are homeless at that point in time. It's not a great thing. I do not like parsonages. But it was right next to the church, and a lot of land that was there, and in this time period, we didn't lock doors. I know it's weird. It was Lansing, but we didn't lock doors. And you didn't have the mass shootings and stuff going on. You didn't have kids being stolen off the streets. It was just starting to get weird like that, mostly out in California. Um, we were what we called free, what they called a free-range kids. And we just roamed the neighborhood, and they'd call us at night, and we'd come home, you know, and all. And so there was an event at the church, I don't know what it was, but there was a party that was going to be held downstairs afterwards, uh, an after-service thing at night. 
for some reason I had fallen asleep in the balcony because it's easy to fall asleep up there. You know that? Because you think nobody's watching you. You know that? So I fall asleep up in the balcony and, um, you know, something you should never do in church. Um, and I wake up and the sanctuary's dark. Okay, that's just a little bit, but I wasn't too unsettled because I knew there was a party in the basement, okay? But it's a little unsettling because when a church is dark at night, especially those old churches, they smelled of mildew and demons at night, okay? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm kind of working my way down the stairs and I'm going down and, and the sanctuary level was, was dark too, but that's all right, it's in the basement. Everyone wants to be in the basement. I don't know why this, you know, so I, I go into the basement. Now the basement in a church is, is where all the demons actually live, <laughs> And just so you know, this church has no basement. That's just so we don't propagate that stuff, okay? So I'm now in the basement of the church, and it's all dark, and no one's there. And I've realized for the first time, I'm alone in this church. There's nobody here but me and the demons in the basement, all right? So now I work my way back up to the top level, like or the mid, the floor level, and, and uh, you're, you're getting increasingly terrified. You're just walking on the wall. I'm, and, and I'll give you a quick picture. I went back years later, and this is a, a more modern picture of the place. These outer doors weren't there when I was there. This an add-on, this airlock. Those are the original doors back there. And, and you can see it's cool. They got crash bars. So, I mean, what's the issue? You just, you're out, right? Safety feature, crash bars. Fire safety. Yeah, they chained the doors at night. And so now I'm in that glassed-in area, and um, I can't get out. And I know there's no one but me and the demons in this church. <laughs> and you can sit here and say, your parents, what was going on with them? Well, we were close enough that they assumed I went home with my, five year, my, my sister, who's five years older than I am. And it wasn't until my dad went to uh, tuck us in at night and say prayers over us, which he did all the time, that he realized, suddenly, hey, we're missing you know, one of the kids. What caught me this time and reminded me so sharply is, yeah, the terror, yeah, the fear. Um, I huddled against the glass of that door. But I remembered now why I huddled against the glass of that door. It wasn't, I knew I couldn't get out that way. But there was a light, there was a street light just outside that door. And it was the one place that light was penetrating my darkness. I went against the door knowing I couldn't get out. That wasn't the issue. I went against that door because there was light. And that drew me, that, that gave me some element of hope. Now, just to finish the story and so you don't think I died there, um, <laughs> my father did come back and, and release Shane, and I, I, I just still remember leaping into his arms and the beauty of that moment. And that was uh, quite some time ago now. But I'll never forget just pressing my face against the glass. There are some of you in this season that have lost people that were very close to you, either in this season or even in years past, but during the holiday, you remember it, and it, it, it's like a sharp knife again. There's those of us who've lost jobs, lost positioning, there's a disease you're dealing with that, that you fear could take your life or seriously limit your life. There's relationships that have fallen away. 
Um, there's struggles in our society that have made the holidays more painful sometimes even to get together with family. There may be things in your own self that's hopeless and spinning down as you see the world around us spinning into insanity. The idea that there could be a festival of lights, the idea that, that God's provision seems very pale to you right now. You are in a dark place with your face pressed against the glass feeling chained in. This is exactly the reason as to why Christ came. This is precisely why he's referred to as the light of the world. And I find it interesting that this central candle in Hanukkah, this symbol of perseverance, this symbol of standing against the dark and of of the miraculous intercession of God, would have as a central figure something referred to as a shamash, the helper, the servant. Because we find in Isaiah and other prophecies that Jesus Christ is referred to, yes, as the light, but he's also referred to as a servant of God. The one who came to seek and save that which was lost, sitting in darkness, chained in. And so this morning, in the little bit of time that we have here, I want to encourage you in whatever place you're at, do not forget that God's grace is there still. Don't lose track of dedicating your life to him and realize that even in in what seems to be nothing left of the reserve that you have, that in the same way that it was a miracle for the Jewish people years ago, that God can provide that same miracle and he promises, he promises to maintain to you until those chains fall away. That door is opened and the light that you can just see from a distance now is a crack in the distance is something you're able to embrace fully. To that end, let us minister to you in these closing moments. Father, I pray that your grace, that your peace, that your light would enter any of the dark spaces in our souls this day. In Jesus' name. During Hanukkah, one of the things that's traditional is to read from Psalm 30. This was a song for the dedication of the temple, the very first temple. And so often they'll read the entire psalm. I'm just going to read the first um, five verses for you today. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. And then this final passage. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. In this season, don't lose track of the light. 
Father, I thank you for the rich imagery that you provide for us. Just the idea, Jesus, of you just standing on the temple when those 75-foot-tall menorahs are being lit and the whole city is lit and you just quietly speaking to people and, and pointing out and saying in the midst of that, I am the light of the world. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Father, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen the people this day that whatever small reserve of oil that they have, that you would extend it until the doors are open and the chains come off. Encourage us this day as we stay steadfast in dedication to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, we as your people pray. And the people said, Amen. Amen.